Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Ah, that is the first question. My name is Lisa Borlechka. I heard a British accent, but I, is that where you're from? Yeah, I'm originally from the UK, yeah. Grew up in London and also in Scotland. Of course, you're at, now at Tashkeel in Dubai. It is in Dubai, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Because it's sort of on that border of Dubai, Sharjah. I was never quite sure where Tashkeel was. So, Dubai. Now, how long have you been in the United Arab Emirates? I first moved in 2005 to the UAE from Beirut, where I was based at the time. And then I had a little sojourn for two years over in Bahrain. And then I moved back to the UAE in 2009. And I've been here ever since. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess the first question would be, what drew you from the UK and Scotland to the Middle East in the first place? I got married when I was 19 years old. I was a child actress, very precocious, and I then, you know, took my acting career foot, foot forward. And in about 1991, 92, I was invited to perform at an international festival of theatre in Casablanca in Morocco. And there I met and fell in love with the interpreter. I ended up going back to that festival about three or four times performing each year. And by the end of the, I think, second or third production I took over there, I was married. And basically, I spent the rest of my university life living in Casablanca and commuting to Glasgow for lectures. And that really started my first interest in, in, in the Middle East. I'd never been to the Middle East, North Africa before. I had no intention before of uh, learning about the culture. You know, I was a, a British girl, and I taken a holiday in Jersey, and that's as far as I traveled. But the more I spent time in Morocco, the more beautiful, beautiful people I met, the more I learned about that particular culture, the more interested I became. And by the time I left after five years, I was hooked. Now, you're the, currently the deputy director at Tashkeel. What, what, give me a definition of deputy director. Deputy director, obviously, the job description takes all types of manifestations, just depending where you are in the world. I am the full-time, on-call member of the senior management. I report to the founder and director of Tashkeel, Her Highness Sheikha Latifa bin Maktoum bin Rashid al-Maktoum. And I look after the team on a daily basis, and I make sure that all our projects and programs are delivered on time and to the maximum effect, we hope. And you, you, I mean, you've been there for a while because I also saw some videos where you worked at, I believe, ADMAF as well in Abu Dhabi. Yes, I spent eight or nine wonderful years at the Abu Dhabi Music and Arts Foundation working alongside Her Excellency Huda Al-Khamis Khanu, the founder, helping her run all the projects and programs of the foundation, including the monumental annual Abu Dhabi Festival, the memories of which I will treasure forever, really. I remember it even when I was there. Now, so first of all, for the listeners, a lot of them around the world may not be aware of exactly what Tashkeel is and what it offers and all that. So how about a little background on the nature of Tashkeel itself? Basically, the contemporary art scene of the United Arab Emirates sort of start, starts around the year 2000, 2005, I'd say. In 2008, 
Her Highness Sheikha Latifa established Tashkil straight out of university. She just graduated with a BA in fine arts from Zayed University, where you taught. And she saw a real need in the emerging contemporary art scene. There was a a growing critical mass of galleries, but there was nowhere where professional artists and designers who were living and working in the UAE could actually make their work and be supported as they develop their careers. You know, just because you, you leave university with a piece of paper that says you're an artist, it doesn't actually mean that you can, you can do anything or you don't need further education and further training. So, she created Tashkil in a, a beautiful old building in Nadal Shiba. It used to be the local supermarket, in fact. And it was there that she's developed Tashkil as an art and design center that nurtures the practice of UAE-based artists and designers. In doing so, helps them develop their skills, nurture the creative and cultural industries of the UAE, and embed creativity in the wider fabric of society. That is a huge scope. That's a that's a very yeah. lofty goal for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we try and push the peanut forward every year. The wonderful thing is, after thirteen years, the the number and the diversity of art and design practitioners in the UAE have has multiplied beyond all imagination. You know, and we're only talking, you know, just over one decade. When I first moved to the UAE in two thousand and five, for for a woman to stand up and say in Arabic, Ana Fanana, I am an artist, was looked down upon. It was, oh, no, you don't want to be saying that in public. Today, every single artist and designer, whatever nationality, whatever culture, uh, particularly in Arabic, they are standing up and saying loud and proud, we are artists, we are designers, and we are here in the UAE. One thing that I ran into a lot when I was there was that like, and this is going to sound a little bit negative, but let me get through it, that a lot of the Emirati artists could be very big fish in their sort of what I would call like their small pond of the UAE. So like, what is Tashkil doing to try and get those artists onto more of the world stage versus just in the UAE? Challenging them, challenging them every step of the way. I think embedding that mindset that you can always improve. There is always, your curiosity should be driving you forward. You should never be apathetic and settle for what you are practicing at the moment. That's the gauntlet we lay down to every practitioner that walks through our doors. First of all, you have to join as a member of Tashkil. There's an interview process. And that's where we first sort of assess your curiosity, your hunger, if you are very happy in being the best and your your little illustrations are selling like hotcakes and Instagram and you don't have anything else in the world to learn, goodbye. Good luck, but goodbye. If you walk around our studios and our facilities and you get excited, we see the fire in your eyes when you see the printmaking vacuum bed or the enamel oven or the laser cutter, that's the type of person we want at Tashkil. Somebody who will, you know, maximize the facilities that we've got, somebody we will see on a regular basis, and somebody who will become part of our creative community. Tashkil doesn't have any doors. All our studios are open. You walk through them to get to another one. So everybody 
who uses our facilities has to be social animals. And out of that comes a lot of collaborations between our members, not just that, but great dialogue and discourse and conversations, of course. So you've got to be a particular kind of character to join Tashkeel. That's probably why I never joined, quite honestly. Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> no. sound like <laughs> We know how hard you professors work. Sorry. Oh, yeah, well... But that's a whole different podcast. But the 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 one thing I do remember about Teshkiel was they had amazing facilities. Like you all had, you know, huge studios, great equipment, all this kind of stuff. Like that was the one thing that like constantly kept coming up in conversation was like, oh, you need to do something with this medium. Go to Teshkiel, you know, because you all offer to the general public, of course, after your vetting process, the ability to use some really amazing resources. Yeah, sure. No, definitely. You know, we've got the vacuum print beds, the exposure units. We've got one of the very few public analog dark rooms left in the UAE. We've got a fantastic photography studio, the Ferrari of digital printing presses, and on and on and on. You know, we have a team on hand and technicians to assist and advise. But, you know, once you know a machine, we let you fly with it. And we want to see what you come up with. You know, if it's weird and wonderful and wacky, that's great. If it's a failure, that's also fantastic. That's one of the big issues, going back to, you, you know, the Emirati question, that there is a pressure on some artists and designers, depending on their background, that whatever they have to create has to be perfect. And we are, no, 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 it doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, the product, the, the product is the last thing you should be thinking about. It is the process that you need to get your hands into and play around. If you fail, that's fantastic. You're going to learn from something. And that's the kind of philosophy that we try and embed in some of the new sort of graduates that are coming out of the Emirati universities, particularly. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan. Like, I'm very much process-based artist myself. I'm also, I do my own work as well. And like, you know, not everything. I'm even scared about putting things like on social media because I'm like, okay, but that I'm still in the process of that and it might fail. And I don't want you to know about my failures, you know, but of course people want to know about people's failures these days with social media and all that. So got to do it. But uh, yeah, but failure is a hundred percent part of the process. Agreed. It seemed to me when I was doing some research on you and listening to you, you you have a lot of um, knowledge about like sort of how to expand the cultural opportunities, uh, funding, um, and you know r- raising awareness, this kind of stuff. Is that correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you know information is power, and artists and designers spend so much time focusing on their own research focusing on their, you know, exploring their own practice, they need as much support and guidance as they can to bring things to them that might be of benefit. So, you know, at Tashkeel, we provide them with a weekly dose of information, like a one-stop shop of what's going on, of what to apply for, what opportunities are out there, of what they should be reading. And then we, our team is on hand to help them on a both practical level and sort of a critical level to further their practice. If they don't want our assistance, 
that's fine. They can unsubscribe from our eShots and they can, they can say, thank you very much. We're okay to our team. But, you know, to surround them with that support structure is really important. And, you know, day or night, we're open sort of from 10 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. Day or night, we will have somebody on hand that can help someone out. All right. So what, what's, uh, I guess the question would be for Tashkil, like, does it have a, like an, an end goal or, or like what, what is it it's aspiring to create or, or build, you know, in the grand scheme of things like, you know, talking decades and, you know, longevity kind of legacy ideas. As the population of the UAE grows and diversifies and, as this country grows, you will have more and more people born in this country. Now you're seeing the second, the third generations coming through of, of people of different nationalities who have been born and raised in the UAE. That also brings its own challenges, for example, with regards to cultural identity. But more and more, the word expatriate is disappearing from the lexicon here in the UAE. You're becoming residents. You're settling, you know, okay, you may not be getting the passport yet, but you're getting longer and longer visas to stay. You can start to call this country home. Now there's 10 year visas that you can get. Really? Yeah. So, so four years was what they gave last time I was there. There's a change in terminology. There's a change in attitude here in terms of knowing that people are going to be born here they're going to be raised here. They're going to enter the, the sort of the career market here. And they may well stay here for another 40, 50 years. You know, my contemporary, I have, I have many friends who are contemporaries of mine in the art scene, and they have been born and raised here in the UAE. Their, their families came in the 1970s. So with that social change comes a need to support not only the Emirati contemporary art practice, but also the wider UAE-based art practice. Both in art and design, Tashkil is looking at nurturing discourse, being able to export our practitioners and what they produce to the world. And particularly, I mean, at the moment, we're working on a, a design project, particularly in the realms of design, nurturing a UAE design language in all its diversity and, and range, but really nurture a, a language and a, and a personality that says, right, this is the UAE art scene. What about, okay, one thing that I, because I was at Zayed University, which is an all, well, it was primarily female students. We had male students, but not in the college I taught in. In the arts college, it was it was female only. How is the uh, the gender breakdown of Tashkil? Is it sort of like prom prominently male or female? What's the the breakdown? And also within that, I'll go with it. So like demographics across the board. How about age ranges as well? In terms of ages, I think from I mean we do have a uh, we do provide youth programs, but from our members, it's from about twenty five upwards. I think 25 to about 50, 55 is probably the age range. In terms of nationalities, we're like the United Nations, but we have quite a strong representation, I would say, between 30 and 40% of Emirati practitioners. And in terms of male and female, yes, it is predominantly female, but we've got some wonderful gentlemen as well with some very loud voices, God bless them. <laughs> yeah, it's... look. This 
country was established in 1971. This year, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the UAE. This country has pressed the fast forward button on everything. But on some things, in my humble opinion, you can't push the fast forward button on social attitudes, on artistic practice. Those are innately organic. You know, as I said earlier, 15 years ago, artistic expression was almost a taboo subject. Now look at it. So I think in in another 15 years, wow, we're going to see the demographics change again. You might, you know, you might come back to me in, I don't know, 2031 and say, wow, Lisa, there's more men than women in the art and design sector of the UAE. You know, you just cannot tell. But I think that there is a greater recognition that art and design profession in all its diversity is growing and becoming a viable career for some families, for some families, not everybody. Yeah, I know. I had a number of students whose fam- like the, the families wouldn't allow them to actually go into the profession. They were fine with them getting the education, but not they would not let them, let them go into the profession. One of the, And one of the things that I kept running into, which I said to the students a lot, was like when I put out my artwork into the world, I don't walk around going, I'm a United States male heterosexual Christian artist. But a lot of my students, at least, were walking around going, I'm a Muslim United Arab Emirate woman artist. And I wonder about the, the nature of like putting all these uh, I don't know what they're called, but like extra words <laughs> on descriptions. Like why I was always trying to encourage the students to be great artists, period. Don't care about their gender, their religion, their geographical location, just great artists. But yet a lot of people, and don't get me wrong, this is not a UAE thing alone. I mean, I know a lot of American artists that say, oh, I'm an American or a French artist that say they're French artists, you know, whatever. But how how can we try and transcend that a little bit more so they get it so that the, the the those things are not as important? It's a very good question. I mean, I think it's to do with maturity and confidence, really. You know, wherever you go in the world, you have families that don't want their son or their daughter to pursue a humanities career. My yeah, Mine my too. mother wanted me to be. <laughs> My mother wanted me to be a pediatrician at the age of seven because I could spell the word. I had no interest in science whatsoever. I think, you know, and and talking about sort of the issue of, of being defined by one's own nationality, one's own culture, I think all of us go through a period of our lives if we are practitioners, be it art, design, music, whatever, discipline, of wanting to belong to a community wanting to wear your heart on your sleeve, so to speak. And never forget that, you know, the UAE is built on tribal society. You are part of a greater unit. And that is what keeps gives you the confidence to continue. That's what gives you the strength and the ability to succeed. So one, as you grow, you grow out of that mentality. You start to develop confidence in your own self-expression. And I think, you know, I am certainly seeing that with MRT practitioners that that are now in their late 20s and early 30s and late 30s. But I think certainly 
18 to 21 year olds at university and those uh, coming into the pre-professional phase of their careers. Yeah, of course, they, they, they want to attach themselves to something. And, and that something is, is the modern day tribe. Okay, I can I can go with the idea of like sort of wanting to wanting to find your tribe or your community. I mean, we all do it even in the arts. We look for our own little tribe and all this kind of stuff. That that makes better sense for me. I've been asking that question to a lot of people and nobody can give me a good answer, but that was a good answer. <laughs> When I was in the UAE, one of the things that I found that was kind of difficult was that a lot of what I would call like professional art supplies were not available. So like, how do you sort of get, encourage artists in a region where maybe some of the more, and it sounds snobby saying it like professional art supplies, but like professional art supplies are difficult to get into the Middle East um, for customs reasons and whatever other, and of course the shipping costs and all these kind of stuff. So like, how do you help them to sort of elevate their practice uh, with the fact that it's difficult to necessarily get sort of professional materials? Yeah, uh, look, uh, it may be a desert, but it's not literally a desert when it comes to shopping. You know that. And, you know, consumerism has spread. You know, what you can buy online these days and get delivered within five working days is absolutely astonishing wherever you are in the world. And the UAE is no different to that. I've certainly seen over the last three and a half years, while I've been at Tashkil, the supply chains have really widened up. Just last week, I was informed of another art supply store that was opening a second branch in Al Khawanij, another district of Dubai. So it's not as bad as all that. But yes, when you do, do get down the very specialist route, where even in the in, in Czechoslovakia or in the UK or the US, you would have to perhaps pre-order something from the other side of the country. It's the same here. Now, if our members tell us over and over again, oh, oh come on, I, I need some Fabriano paper from Italy. This particular GSM is not available in the UAE. Please help. We go, that's that. Let's, let's, let's bulk, bulk order and let's share. Let's have some for our shop and let's share the cost with you members. So, you know, you can buy your quantity you need now and you can have a backup supply to, uh, available to purchase from Tashkil. So, yeah, we think around those uh, little challenges. But in my three and a half years at Tashkil, I think we've had to do that twice. Mm, okay. What what about the art buying market? I mean, now keep in mind, so like I'm coming from, I was raised in America and now live in Europe. Having been there, I sort of have a, a my own little personal opinion and experiences of it there. But the world's perception of how the art world is going in, in the United Arab Emirates, I believe is very different than the reality. So like what's your experiences in the sort of art buying collector part of the world there? I first moved to the UAE in 2005, and I was the first full-time editor of Canvas, the first Middle East art magazine. And back then, you could literally write down on a piece of paper the known collectors, let me say. The longer I've spent in this, in the, particularly in the Arabian Gulf, the more I understand that to, and I know this sounds funny, but to display your wealth, to display your collection and say, look at me and look at all the wonderful artists, artworks that I own, is in some segments of society seen as not 
good to do. Modesty is the best policy. I know you're you're looking at me on the camera going, what? Has she lost the plot? But really, to be honest, over the last... We're, we're talking about Dubai, right? <laughs> like, it is not a uh, modest place. No, I, I'm talking about Dubai. I'm also talking about, you know, my experience in Bahrain and Saudi as well. There are collectors who want to remain very private. They relish the collections that they amass on a private level, and they do not wish to display their wares at every opportunity. Now, there is another collector who does that on a very demonstrative public level. I was here when Christie's, the auction house, first set up shop, and they were the first auction house to establish themselves in the United Arab Emirates. And they, I remember they held their first auction of Middle East contemporary art in Emirates Towers in Dubai, and literally people were putting their hands up going, look at me, look at me and how much I'm bidding. And, and there was a period in the ensuing years where you would go to an opening of a, of a new exhibition and you would see people didn't have the slightest interest in looking at the work. They were looking at the labels, they were looking at the prices, and they were looking at the people around them saying, look at me, I am here, aren't I wonderful? It's like a really excited teenager that, that gets their Nintendo Playbox for the first time. And we've, we've come through the other end of that excitement with the new. Collectors are becoming more discerning. They're becoming more experimental. Some of the collections that I've seen are formidable, not just because of what they contain, but what the collector knows him or herself. The collectors are becoming as informed as the gallerists they buy from. They're becoming savvy. They are getting more and more interested in not just buying the same old familiar names. They are interested in investing in up-and-coming artists. The reason I say that, and I'll give you an example, when the auction houses first came onto the scene here, there was several artists who, for every single sale, they would have at least one or two pieces in them. And then suddenly, the auction market sort of starts to slow down, some would say mature, and those artists are in a little bit of a pickle because they flooded the market with so much work that the resale price of those pieces is not even the same as when you bought it originally. And collectors became wise to that. So I think the collectors are becoming more educated themselves, more informed. Um, they are becoming part of the scene now. And it's, it's fantastic to have conversations with them because they are so knowledgeable now. Yes, you get the odd one who still, you know, is, is uh, back in the 2008, look at the anti-wonderful. Uh, <laughs> but the majority of them are uh, getting more and more informed and more and more interested. From my experiences in the UAE, the, I found that a lot of the collectors in the UAE would only collect Middle Eastern art. There was a, a not at, at that time 
and maybe just the people I met, very much interest in artists from throughout the world. And I mean, because like I know a lot of artists that are like, oh my gosh, there's a ton of money in Dubai. I want to sell my art there, you know, trying to get galleries in Dubai to try and exhibit in Dubai or do residencies or other things like this, which are very Tashkeel sort of oriented. But I, has that sort of nature of like a collecting beyond just the Middle East uh, started to occur yet? Look, I don't know every single collector in the UAE. Let's put that caveat out there right now. I can only speak from my own experience, right? <laughs> I think you know a lot of them. I don't know what you're talking about, but that's fine. I think that a collection reflects your interests and who you are. And I think the majority of collectors, yes, uh, in, in Dubai are of Arab origin. And so the artists of the Middle East and Arab world reflect how they see the world. And I, I think that that's just a human trait at the end of the day. Now, there are the same collectors have studied in the US, done their postgrad in France, lived in Russia, worked in Australia. And so they may well be as informed about those art scenes as, as they are of the MENA, the, the Middle East North Africa scene. And certainly I have, you know, I, I can know, I can count on one hand the number of private collections that are exclusively 100% Middle Eastern. But then you get to another question. What is Middle Eastern? What is Arab? You know, and then you get into this whole uh, spiel about, you know, borders and boundaries and colonialism and so forth and, and Arab unity. Oh, we don't want to open that Pandora's box now. But, you know, it, it, throwing these labels and trying to categorize and compartmentalize collections. Yes, I understand it has to be done, but in my personal experience, you collect what you want to collect. You collect what speaks to you. And, you know, when I go around a collector's residence and they, they talk about the works and it triggers memories and, and recollections, that's beautiful. I don't care where they're from. You know, they could be from China. They could be from France. They could be from Lebanon. I don't care. It's about that journey that that collector is trying to build themselves. Now, you mentioned a very good point about, you know, artists coming to this part of the world because they think the, the highways are paved with gold. Mm, I love those people because I can smell them a mile off. And if I have an art professional or some individual who comes to me and sits in front of me and says, oh, we'd like to collaborate or we'd like to do a project, I know immediately, call it female intuition, I know immediately that they're not interested in a collaboration, they're interested in a transaction. It's two very different words. I'm not interested in a transaction. I'm interested in a legacy, a legacy that will be of benefit to the practitioners here in the UAE and, and the wider Middle East, North Africa region. So I send those people on their way or they can trot down the road of the commercial galleries that are in Dubai International Financial Center and other parts of the UAE who have a far wider global client reach. But for Tashkeel, we're about developing meaningful, memorable mutually beneficial relationships. Okay, now, but now Tashkeel has a residency program. I love residencies programs. I'm all about them. Tell So like, 
like you just said, like you can smell out the people that like are coming for ulterior motives and things like this. Is this something that happens a lot in like the residency applications where people would be like, yeah, I want to come to Dubai because there's a ton of money there kind of like thing. Or, you know, like what are you seeking for somebody who like, let's say, wants to apply for a residency there? Well, I've got some bad news. Our residencies are not open for application. No! They are by invitation only. We go oh. and find you. We track you down. And if we like the look of you, we will extend the arm of friendship and start a conversation. That conversation could last for many months, even years, before we invite you for a residency. Because our residencies start at four months and they go up to a year. Some of your listeners might know of the artist El Cid, who is now, you know, well well known throughout the world. Fauzi started a relationship with us when he was invited to do a one-year residency with us in 2013, where the challenge was flung down in front of him by Sheikh Latifa, the founder, say, you are not allowed to do anything two-dimensional. The moment you walk into Tashkil, two-dimensional canvases, you're not allowed to touch them. You can only work three-dimensionally. And that 12 months was a challenge, but it changed his practice to what you see today in Korea, in Canada, in France, in Dubai. That's how we work our residencies. It's almost top secret in terms of how we invite people and they remain part of the family. Is it actually top secret? Because I would really love to know. Like, like, well, I mean, no, because like the reason why I ask this is because like I know this guy, and I say this a lot. This guy in Washington D.C. who has a gallery, and he used to say he used to. I don't know if it was a joke that he said this or real, but he used to say he would find an artist, and then he would put it, uh, put them in a file folder, and then ten years later he would go look and see if they were still making work, and then maybe he would be interested in representing them. But he needed that 10 years of tenacity and continuing to practice and making better work before he would even entertain representing them. So like, that's why I'm wondering, like, so these kinds of invitation only, so not just you all, but I mean, any invitation only residency or program of any sort, like, what are some of the criteria you look for? Like, like I'll say like, hey, I'm sitting here, I was in the UAE, and what what would have gotten me on the radar as a practitioner to be invited? A very good question. I think, I think for us, one of the key criteria points is that we are looking for someone who has got a discipline or a technique or an interest that is nascent here in the UAE. And that by them coming here and spending a significant amount of time with us, not only will they be able to extend the boundaries of their practice, but they will also be able to share their technical skills and perspective and approach with our fellow members. So they're passing it forward, so to speak, and sowing the seeds so that that particular technique or discipline or subject matter can take root in the UAE and grow. So it's very much sort of, one could call it legacy development. I think it's also more and more we're looking at reciprocal arrangements for residencies. So just as we would invite someone from overseas that we've been following for a while, we would want to send somebody from the UAE to 
that destination as well. We've done that with Japan, a wonderful studio based in Japan. And we also did that in uh, 2019 with Dundee Contemporary Arts Centre in Scotland. You know, where once residencies were a one-way road, you know, a monologue, so to speak, we've got something to offer now. We've got, in fact, quite a few <laughs> practitioners to offer the world that the world can learn from. And we want to send them out there. So, so our residencies are starting to have that reciprocal aspect to them as well. Interesting. So I'm not sure I got a clear answer. How does somebody get on the radar of the is? I'm, okay, wait, but like, let's say it back a step. Is it a committee or is it like a, an individual person? Like, you know, do you have a curator that sort of does the selection for the, 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 the invitations and things like this? So like, I, I'm utterly fascinated and I'm not trying to find some deep, dark secret from you all, but like, I'm, I'm really fascinated because you know, some residencies say that they have a selection committee and some say that like they, they actually hire a curator and that curator will go out and find people that they think would mesh well together kind of thing. Like, so like, what's the kind of practice and the way that you all have figured out to do that? No, we don't have a selection committee. We don't need one. The individual who established Tashkeel, who embodies its vision, who is a phenomenal fine artist herself and knows the workings of Tashkeel inside and out on a daily basis, she makes the final decision and she will follow uh, practitioners for, for many, many years before she eventually you know, says, right, this is the one we're going to go after. Uh, similarly, other members of, a, of the team, and we are a really small team, we've got to say, you know, we are doing lots of different jobs at the same time. We will obviously uh, highlight and, and, and suggest uh, practitioners as well. So we'll follow people concurrently. And when we feel that there's a right time in their career and in their life to pack up and move to the UAE for four months or more, you know, not everybody can do that, let's face it. And then we will, we will pounce. <laughs> but no, we don't have selection committees. We cut through all of that bureaucracy. We go with instinct and the instinct of our founder. Very nice. That's probably a lot easier than all the committee meetings that I've heard about from other places. Yes. Okay. How about the growth of the general arts industry? Because you, you, uh, you know, I was there from 2012 till 2018 or so, something in that range. So I was only there for like a segment, but you've been there for much longer and you've seen a lot more growth in that industry throughout. I mean, you've been there from before the Louvre, uh, probably even before they even planned for the Louvre. <laughs> Um, in Abu Dhabi and and all the way up to what's going on now, which I mean, you know, now the the uh, Dubai Art Fair, the Abu Dhabi Art Fair, all these kinds of things are starting to get much you know broader international um, interest in the region. And so, like, you know, how have you seen it grow, and what what do you think is going to be the future of all this? What's going to Sorry. be the future? I, uh, I don't mean to make you prognosticate. So, how do you see the growth? <laughs> I'm not going to look into a crystal ball, Matthew. That's for sure. But um, how have I seen the how have I seen the growth of the uh, art scene here in the UAE? Well, you know, talk about the Louvre. I was at the press conference in 2006 when they announced Sadiat Island Cultural District. I was there with Richard Armstrong from the Guggenheim Foundation. I, um, Zaha Hadid was there. Tado Ando was there. It was a phenomenal event, and you know, just 
despite trials and tribulations, they are doing it. And the Louvre Abu Dhabi is a phenomenal feat of architecture and it has one of the most astounding collections in the world. So what if they bought the brand? Go and see it. You know, the substance is phenomenal. <laughs> I lived right. I was I lived on Ream Island, like literally like I could have walked over there. So like it was magnificent. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, the opening I shall never forget. But I think yes, you, you've you've got you've got interesting case studies happening side by side. I think in the UAE, you know, uh, you've got to remember that uh, this is seven emirates. It's a federation, so to speak, which signed a, a unifying agreement in 1971. And so you've got three dominating emirates: Abu Dhabi, which has the capital of the UAE, Dubai, and next door to Dubai is the Emirate of Sharjah. You've got three different approaches to culture happening side by side. It's fantastic microcosm. In Sharjah, it's very much patronage-led. The ruler of Sharjah and his family, his daughters and his sons, have been phenomenal protagonists in the growth of the, the cultural scene. Very much from a patronage perspective, I would, I would describe, a modern-day patronage. In Dubai, it's Build it and they will come. Trade, trade, trade. It was before. It will be now. It will be in the future. So this is where the commercial galleries, this is where the auction houses set up shop. In Abu Dhabi, you've got a very much government-driven, public sector-driven art scene where capital buildings, capital projects like the Louvre, like the Guggenheim, uh, the Zayed National Museum are taking shape. So you've got three different examples next door to each other. Now, I spent a long time in, in, in Abu Dhabi and, you know, hats off to what they're doing there. There aren't that many commercial galleries. There, there is a growing number of collectives, but it's, it's, it's slow from an independent basis. In Dubai, independence that's what it's all about. Whether you're going down the commercial route or you want to form some kind of collective um, as, a, as a band of practitioners yourself. However, the whole of the UAE is really limited to what it can achieve from an experimental perspective. That is really down to the philanthropists that drive the not-for-profit sector as we all know it around the world. It is those philanthropists that are setting up the incubators, the hubs, the springboards to allow each sort of generation, each cohort of graduates from Zayed University to experiment and to play and to grow and to fly the nest. Yeah, your, your Alistair calls. Yes, exactly, exactly. So I think that that area needs needs more focus, in my personal opinion. But hey, I'm biased. I think we've got a very strong commercial sector. Trade is in the lifeblood of this country, and it's in the lifeblood of the Emirates of Dubai, particularly. You've got you know phenomenal capital projects growing up across the UAE. Now, what you need is a big valley in which. All the artists and practitioners that are living and working here can fail, can grow, can work, can thrive without fear of monetary consequences. And that's the area that needs to grow.
And it is. It is. I'm seeing really interesting sort of buds appearing now on the tree that is the cultural sector in the UAE. So, so over the next few years, you're going to see the not-for-profit sector grow immensely, I think. Well, I mean, there's some amazing resources. I mean, the, the design district and a bunch of the other things around. I mean, there's some f- absolutely astounding stuff that it's funny because like I remember like looking at uh, with some students of mine that they were thinking they were like, oh, we'll just go rent a studio at like this de- design, de- the design district, Dubai, Dubai design district D3. And the the prices, when I heard them, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, that's not an artist studio. That's a retail space. Like, yeah. and, but, but but to them, they were just like, oh, yeah, that's an artist studio. That's fine. I was just like, what? The, I mean, the, the, the possibility of like an outside of the UAE artist coming into the UAE and being able to afford to be an artist, I always thought it was a, there was a bit of a barrier to entry on that. I mean, you know, if you're going to come to Dubai, you have to sort of have to do something else and do art on the side, uh, at least in the beginning, just to get yourself settled in. Because it, the, the that the general sort of cost of living there is really high and really, uh, so as I said, barrier to entry for a lot of potential creative people wanting to move there. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. It is uh, an expensive city, but the fees you charge are expensive compared to other parts of the world as well. So what you what you invoice, you receive and you spend. They have recognized the government, both in terms of the different emirates and, and the wider federal government have recognized this. And I read regularly in the newspapers more and more announcements, particularly sort of uh, post-COVID lockdown of raising those barriers to entry. So now it's cheaper than ever to set yourself up as a freelance furniture designer, a freelance graphic designer, a freelance artist, a freelance filmmaker. The prices of properties, rental properties are going down and down and becoming much more affordable. And, you know, the general legislation around moving moving to the UAE and how you can set yourself up here. Yes, of course, you need investment. But of course, you need investment wherever you move in the world. But you don't need the big fat, fat checks that one talked about, you know, before 2000, 2012 or whatever. No, I think it's it's far more achievable now than it's ever been, I have to say. Going back to the studio issue, yeah, price per pair, uh, per square foot of real estate here in the UAE, whether it's residential, commercial, or whatever the use, is is we are one of the most expensive places to live in the world. We're not going to fall down the list tomorrow. <laughs> Get used to it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We were looking in a warehouse district uh, the in, in Abu Dhabi, and it was, don't get me wrong, actually, the, there was a place we found that was stunning, massive, like 20,000 square meter space. It was absolutely gorgeous. Price was very affordable. No air conditioning. Mm. Yeah, you need which, to put that in yourself. Yeah, which is totally unplausible in, in that region to have a studio with no climate control. Fair enough. Fair enough. Mind you, I spent five years in Morocco with no air conditioning, but I'd say five years here, uh, I would not. Ha- I would not survive. The UAE is far more humid. You no, know, I mean it, it. It is a massive issue, but like any other major city in the world, artists are the first people to follow the industrialists 
in sniffing out cheap areas. The moment they form a critical mass and they start to hit the headlines, oh, there goes gentrification opportunity and the whole wheel starts again. You know, we, we've seen this with an area in Dubai called Al Koz. It's an industrial estate. And, you know, when I first moved there, you know, to go to Al Koz, it was like, oh, you're entering, you know, a very dodgy area. And there were no galleries there. And suddenly, oh, suddenly we find out that near the cemetery next to the industrial estate is the flying house which was the home of Hassan Sharif, the father of contemporary art in the UAE. And then there's a gallery that pops up down the road. And over the last, what, 15, 20 years, suddenly the art scene has amassed, the galleries have amassed in Alcoz. People have got savvy to this. They throw, they've shot the rental prices through the roof and boom, no one can afford it anymore. So they're moving to other industrial estates further inland. But, you know, you go where the cheap rents are. I think that's, that's the natural, that's the organic urban master plan when it comes to arts and culture, you know? It's not a master plan. It's just the way it works. <laughs> Exactly. Organic, darling. Organic. <laughs> uh, I've I've lived in Washington, D.C. and San Francisco. And heck, even it's happening here in Prague now, too, that like the, the you know, the artists go into these industrial areas and they make it attractive. And then the developers go in and buy it up and then the artists are pushed out and we have to keep finding new and new places. Like it's just the way of the world, unfortunately. It's the, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not planned. But it happens happens repeatedly, so we should start noticing this. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, studios is a big issue here. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, we had a, a member who came to join Tashkil, and she said, I've been in Dubai for a year, and I didn't realize you existed, and I could, you know, rent space from you. I've, I've spent the last year spending 85,000 dirhams try and work that out in dollars while I'm talking. 85,000 dirhams on a studio apartment to use as my art studio. And then a year later, she finds us and she takes one of our private workspaces and she flourishes for a lot less, can I say. So artist studios, yeah, that, that is a big issue in the UAE and it does need support, but it's being recognized. Things, things are going to happen in the next couple of years around that area. I'm figuring out 85,000. That would be 23,000 US or 19,000 euros. A, a year. Yeah. For yeah. a studio? Yeah, that's not that's not your living house. That's your that's your studio space. Like, yeah. Wait, okay. One thing that I noticed when I was there again is like there are a lot of very very talented expats in the creative industries in the UAE. And I felt like we didn't have as many opportunities as regionals. Is that is that something you notice? I felt like my my national Emiratis had exponentially more opportunities than any expat ever did. But be it funding, support, exhibition opportunities, whatever. Like, like I, I it always pissed me off when my students would gra go to graduate and they'd be like, "Oh, I just won this award," and I'm like, "Oh, what'd you win?" And they were like, "Oh, you know, fifty thousand dollars, like dollars." And I'm like, "Are you fu like? Can I apply for that?" And they're like, "No," they're like, "No," because it's only like it's only for Emiratis. I'm like, "God damn it." <laughs> 
I know what the answer is. The answer is it's their country. It's their money. They can do whatever they want. That's the answer. That is half the answer. The other half is that the mindset of the decision makers are changing. Yeah, as the UAE grows, I mean, I, I've seen the, how can you say, the, 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 the way of speaking is changing in terms of expatriates not being expatriates, they are residents, that there is a greater recognition in both formal and informal sort of communications from governments and leaders in this country that this is a multinational population and we must invest in it accordingly. Yes, there will always be preferential, exclusive opportunities for UAE nationals. And why not? It's their country, as you say. But there is a growing, there is a growing, the the doors are opening up for initiatives that are both for UAE and UAE-based practitioners. Tashkil's from the moment we opened our doors, we were for everybody living and working in the UAE. I don't care what passport you've got, even if you haven't got a passport, you are welcome here if you fit our criteria. And and that that approach has is being adopted more and more and more. Certainly in the last, I'd say, six or seven years, you're seeing a real change in the the way people talk about opportunities and that less and less it's more and more i should say it's becoming a level playing field well don't get me wrong like when i was there i mean this is probably talking more about my insecurities and my uh my own issues of my my being a practicing artist but like when i was there I saw my students graduate and win these really big awards that they they would get this massive amount of money or they would get this amazing exhibition at some you know really great gallery that I as an expat never even had the opportunity. Now, I sat there and I was just like, "Oh, I'm so bitter that these like young students who just graduated, I'm their mentor, I'm their teacher and I don't have these same opportunities." But at, at now that I have left there and I've had time to reflect on this situation, I realized, oh, wait, every country does that. <laughs> like in America, there are plenty of opportunities for Americans only that other nationalities are not allowed into. I'm in the Czech Republic. There are things here that I'm not allowed into because I'm American and I'm not Czech. So like I took it personally, like I thought it was something against me, but it turns out I was like, oh, Oh no! Everybody does this. Everybody, <laughs> and, I, and so like I was angry while I was there because I was like, "Why do I not get these opportunities?" But the reality is, is like, it, that happens everywhere in the world. Like, it's not yeah. special at all to that region. But but what what didn't what did upset me most, and it was very difficult, is in the United States. Um, like when I apply for a a grant, let's say, like, right. Or, or let's say an award, let's go go to the award because that's the one that I was most bitter about with my student winning with the, in America, if you enter a competition, you win award, boy, it would be like a thousand dollars. If you're lucky, like the, Ooh, a thousand dollar award. Wow. Or maybe best case scenario, like a purchase award. So you just get, you know, your money back for them selling a piece of work. But in the UAE, like I literally saw one of my students who like 
I think she was still in her senior semester. Like, so she hadn't even graduated and she won an award for like 25,000 us dollars and they didn't buy the works that it was just the award. So like, she just earned $25,000 as a senior in college. And I'm like, why is this disparity so disheartening to me? <laughs> Cause like in America, there is no money for arts, but like in the UAE to their, you know, to, I'm praising them in, in a certain way is like to their benefit, they are putting money into arts and culture in a way that a lot of other countries do not do. Oh yes, yeah, certain, certainly. Also, you've got to remember that the cost of living here is much higher. Yeah, $25,000 doesn't go as far. Exactly, my friend, you know that. So, you know, of course, the awards and prizes are going to be higher. You've got to take that into consideration. It's just, you know, simple economics. But, you know, I do appreciate that some people who come to the UAE to teach, to, to they move here to practice, it doesn't come across as this huge disparity. But I have to say, I've lived in Morocco, I've lived in Egypt, I've lived in Lebanon, Bahrain, and the UAE. When you first touch down, and I know I'm generalizing here, and I, and I hope I don't offend, but when, when I first touch down in any of these countries, it takes me a year and a half of real, might I say, almost stalking, uh, but networking and, you know, going out there and being seen and making conversation with people who really are not interested in you whatsoever. It takes you a minimum of a year and a half to finally get noticed and go, ah, okay, she's not here to use us. She's not here as a selfish opportunity. She's not interested in just a monologue. She's interested in a dialogue. She's interested in putting something down here. And she's interested in collaboration. It does help that I do speak a little bit of Arabic as well. And, and I am astonished at the number of foreign, you know, non-Arabic speaking nationals that are here in the UAE for years. And they don't even know how to say hello. I mean, come on. I know English language is the dominant language here. And you try to speak to anybody in their language and they will reply to you in English. I know it's difficult. You're not going to immerse yourself here. But that's no excuse for you not to learn the language. And in learning the language, you get to understand the inside of the culture. And you get to really appreciate the soul of this place. And somehow... In, in, in many months from first landing, a switch goes on in your head and a, and a light goes on in other people's heads. And that's when the interesting conversations start to take place. I 100% agree with that. Like I've moved, I think I tallied it one time. I think I, since I left my childhood home, I've moved 19 times throughout the world. Wow. Yeah, I know, too many. And, and this is the sort of point, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, it's like, to my detriment, to my career detriment, because I'm having to restart. And so like, I have another two years to settle in for people to realize that I'm staying, that I'm going to be part of this community. And this is one of those things that like, it takes time to build that relationship of, I'm not just here as a visitor or as a tourist or as a, or to use 
like use you all or or to be that monologue as you said but that i want to be part of the community and and that and that's you know that's a difficult thing like like when i was a kid i always thought traveling and experiences were great you should try and do as many as you could and sort of you know see the world and get a lot of perspectives and all this but i realized that i, I think i took that too far <laughs> Like, <laughs> at a certain point, like settling down, like you've done, like you've settled into the UAE and you've sort of become a part of the fabric of the community, but working between, you know, AdMath and now at Teshkeel and all this, like you've built a career and you've built that, that network of, of, of peers and, and, you know, artists and all the other people that you've been, you know, working with, like, this is something that, that artists should learn to do. And people in any part of the creative industries should learn to try and like find a place that they feel comfortable and like stay there and build their network from that home base rather than tr keep traveling and changing locations like I did, because I believe it has hurt my career dr rather dramatically, but that's just my therapy session. <laughs> but, it's, but Matthew, it's not, it's not just a career, isn't it? It's, it's not, you're not just doing it to add a, a couple of extra lines in your CV. You're in it for the journey. You're in it for the experiences. I always said when I was, you know, before I left Morocco and moved back to the UK and then decided and I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to go to Egypt. So I had a second chance to go to the Middle East. And I, and I remember holding that contract in my hand and thinking, I could stay in the UK and I could, you know, join the masses and do the commute and, and you know, have, you know, 3.5 children and half a Labrador. And I thought, right, when I'm old and grey, I want memories and I, I want to sit in that chair and say, I, well, I don't want to sit in that chair and say, if only. I don't want to be old and grey and have regrets. And and I went with what was in my stomach. I firmly believe with my gut feeling. I've, I've, I've loved where I've lived with all the challenges, as you say, that come with it. But I have to say on a personal note, yeah, I, I, I will remain in the UAE for as long as the UAE will have me. But at some point home does call you know my my parents are getting older you know my husband is getting older and you know your family ties do call you back particularly when you're in a society in a culture where family is so important and where you see on a daily basis people from this part of the world you know family is the fundamental element of their life and you, Lisa, has removed yourself from it to embark on this journey of experiences. There does come a time in your life where you do have to face that dilemma and decide, okay, am I in it for another 10 years? Or do I have to sort of face up to family responsibilities and move back home? Fortunately, I've, I've not reached that dilemma yet. I am only 48. <laughs> but, but I know that time will come. And I don't have an answer for it yet. All right. Any last uh, sort of maybe advice or sort of anything you want people to know that maybe we didn't touch on that you want to get out there? I've looked at the other episodes on your podcast and, and congratulations. I understand this is the possibly around the 141st episode that you're recording. I recorded more and some people have said, um, I don't like what we said. Could you not publish it? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so I've recorded a few more than that and, and been very nice and not put it out into the public because they didn't like it for whatever reason. There were some funny ones. There was one that I loved. This guy in Vienna. Oh my God. He sat down and, and like he just railed against the art world for like an hour and a half. He's like, I fucking hate the art world. The art world's horrible. They're a bunch of this bastards. Fuck this. Like cursing like a sailor, like having a horrible day. And I just sat there laughing so hard because I'm like, oh my God, this is the most magnificent interview ever. And yeah. then. And then the next day he was like, um, yeah, could you not publish that? And I'm like, fuck, fuck. It was Darn so it. good. It was so good. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm sure I won't do that to you, Matthew. No, I think that, you know, I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to travel around the world with my job, but I've always traveled from this, you know, from the Middle East, North Africa region. And I think that gives you a certain certainly a different perspective on life and uh, a different way of listening to people. And I would encourage anyone out there listening, if you haven't considered, you know, Middle East, North Africa, give it a go. If you're an artist or designer or, you know, you work in the contemporary art scene, just, you know, shoot us out an email. There's many of us out here that we're, we're part of the, the great big family in the world. And you know, people may look at the MENA region as being nascent in the contemporary art scene. Oh, contraire, my dear, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. They just haven't written books about it in the English language. <laughs> but um, yeah. we've got a phenomenal, yeah, yeah, we, we've got a phenomenal, you know, uh, heritage in terms of visual arts expression. And come and let's talk. That's, you know, our doors are open more so than ever before. I will actually, I'll give a caveat on that. Like, as an outside, as a non-person living in the Middle East and you want to go to the Middle East, the best thing that I saw a lot of people do is just write an email to somebody. Like, because even as a professor at the university, people would, would contact me and say like, hey, uh, I would love to come and do a workshop at your school. And a lot of times we would be like, yeah, you know what? That fits our curriculum beautifully. And we would find the budget to fly them out and bring them in and whatever. So like, but, but the key thing is, is like, for me, like for, from the specifically from like the financial situation of like the cost of living there and all this kind of stuff. If you want to go to the Middle East or to the UAE in particular, I should say, partner with an organization, like contact an organization, create some relationship with them. Don't just go there blindly and just be like, hey, I'm just, hey, I'm here because like that you're not going to get anywhere with that. But but if you can find an organization such as Tashkil or Al-Sarkal or any of the other big organizations around, like that's your way in is, is trying to find a relationship that you can uh, build or start before you get there and then build once you're there. That's the way into that region for sure. Not But do not go blindly as an artist into the, into the UAE because they like you said, it takes two years worth of being there to make some relationships. So like trying to just drop yourself in there is never going to work. Yeah, I totally agree. There was one word that I learned when I lived in Lebanon, and that word is wasta. Now, wasta can have negative connotations, but it can have positive connotations as well. Wasta means connections. It's who you know, my friend. You know, you'll meet one person, they'll introduce you to another, and thus 
the the multiplicity of people grows, and all of a sudden you realise that everybody's got them on your, you know, got you on your on their phones, and they're WhatsApping you twenty four seven. You need the, that introduction. You need to develop your network through endorsement, through recommendation. That is the most important thing. Yeah. That's not the way they used WASTA at, at my school. But yes, I, I, I believe that that uh, translation would work also. <laughs> yes, yes, two different interpretations there. I'm going for the more positive one. <laughs> yes, that's good. Yeah, no, the, it was more of a slang term around Zayed University <laughs> campus. But anyways, um, okay, any la how about any advice? Uh, do you have any advice for anything in particular? Somebody who might want to do what you do, so, you know, so like somebody who wants to get into the industry uh, at, in your capacity or anybody who's interested in working with Tashkeel or any, anything, any sort of advice that you're like, I know this answer. No, there are very many answers that I, that I do not know, but I think from an arts, I'm, I'm an arts administrator, arts manager. I enable people. I don't try to compete. When people come to Tashkeel and ask me uh, what kind of art I do, or am I a product designer, I tell them with a proud heart, I am completely unqualified. Because no, I, I trained as an actress, and then I ended up running the theatre companies I was performing in. But when I came to the Middle East, North Africa, I started in theatre, but I quickly realised that it wasn't a dominant discipline within the cultural sector, and I migrated over to visual art and design. And I um, thank my lucky stars I did that, although I, I've also maintained my hand with theatre and opera. But I have to say, art management is not a secondary career. It is a primary career. It doesn't mean that you failed and therefore you, go and ha you have to go and manage Excel spreadsheets. It's... it's, it's you, you know, you should see it as a primary career, and there's a lot of opportunities out there, both for people who want to pursue 100% a cultural management career, and also those practitioners who want to sustain themselves from various different channels of income generation, and therefore, thereby get a part-time job as an arts administrator. You can also go down that route as well and sustain yourself. But I would definitely say that there are growing opportunities here in the UAE in arts management. As the institutions grow, as the buildings grow, there will be opportunities not only for those UAE nationals that we talked about earlier to start their careers or continue their careers in arts administration, but also for people from around the world who know best, best practice and who are culturally sensitive and are curious about this country and its people, that the doors are open to them. So, so yeah, have a think. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.